Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. We are going to take a quick tour through Elizabeth Warren's 11 commandments of being a progressive, uh, which is to be basically uh, on the left. Uh, but first, a little bit of background about the blonde, blue-eyed Focahontas who has claimed in the past to be uh, descended from Cherokee and uh, other Native American stock. She first listed herself as a minority in the Association of American Law School's Directory of Faculty in 1986, the year before she joined the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She continued to list herself as a woman of color, uh, I think it's 132nd Cherokee, she claims, until 1995, the year she accepted a tenured position at Harvard Law School. The moment that she got tenure, in other words, couldn't be fired, she declined to list herself as a not very visible minority. Now, at the time for hiring in the early 90s, Harvard Law School was embroiled in a very fierce debate over the lack of diversity in the faculty. Um, an African-American law professor named Derek Bell took a two-year leave of absence in order to protest the um, hiring policies uh, at Harvard Law School. Uh, students were holding frequent demonstrations, and the Massachusetts Commission against discrimination had filed a probable cause finding against the school for denying tenure to Claire Dalton, a liberal instructor. And the guy who was in charge was asked um, uh, of hiring, how aggressively is the appointments committee pursuing women and minority faculty members? Uh, this guy replied, very. And um, so Harvard hired Warren for a temporary position in 1992, and the law school reported a Native American woman on its federally mandated affirmative action report. The report did not report, I'm oh, sorry, the program did not report a Native American woman for 1993 through 1995, during which time Warren was uh, back teaching at Penn. Now, the employment, sorry, the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission defines American Indian or Alaska, Alaska Native employees as those, quote, having origins in any of the original peoples of North and South America, including Central America, and who maintain cultural identification through tribal affiliation or community recognition. And uh, this is important. So you can't just, well, there's family story or family lore that says someone way back may have married uh, a Native you actually have, because anyone could say that, right? Uh, and so you actually have to have an official tribal affiliation or community recognition from the tribe. And um, Warren uh, would not qualify as a Native American under these guidelines because she does not meet the second requirement, official affiliation with the tribe or community. And that is uh, important. I mean, she's a law professor, so she would know this kind of stuff. And I did some work on diversity programs uh, in the 90s as well. You know, I former life as a business fellow. And um, so she uh, never verified the stories of her Native American ancestry, but she checked it off, uh, and um, undoubtedly it was a factor in her hiring, uh, given that these were fairly mandated standards uh, at the time. Now, uh, she says that it didn't have anything to do with my hiring and so on, but she's repeatedly refused to release any documents that might support or deny this. She also, um, so she has a couple of proofs. So she says, well, my, you know, there's a family portrait of a guy with high cheekbones and all Native Americans have high cheekbones and therefore, right, and that's 
kind of racist, <laughs> which is also showing up in the 11 commandments for progressives. But um, the other is she says that her parents were forced to elope because her mother had both Delaware and Cherokee Native American ancestry. And she told the story repeatedly, uh, but this was debunked. Uh, it's turned out to be completely false. There's an article showing her parents were married in a religious ceremony 20 miles from their hometown. And the hometown paper proudly announced the wedding within days after the ceremony was performed on January 4th, 1932. In other words, if they eloped, they weren't very good at it, right? To elope, you go a long way away and marry in secret. You don't get married 20 miles from your hometown in a public religious ceremony and then announce it in the paper. So this is, um, this is not true. Now, Professor Warren has also claimed, as we said, the people who hired me for my jobs have all made very clear they didn't even know about it until long after I was hired. Well, that's, you know, if you have a program to hire women of color and you don't find out if the woman has, you know, as she's claimed in the past, have any, then you're really not doing your job very well. So we can assume that that's probably not true. In fact, she admitted to the Boston Globe in, uh, recently that she herself had told both Penn, a university Penn, and Harvard that she was a woman of color prior to her hiring as a full-time professor by Harvard. So Another piece of evidence that she provided was that uh, in 1984, she contributed, I can't believe we're talking about this stuff, but it is actually important in terms of character, and we'll get to why in just a moment. So there was something called the Pow Wow Chow Cookbook, which was published by the Five Civilized Tribes Museum of Muskogee, Oklahoma in 1984. The book's publishers claimed that all the recipes in the book were contributed by descendants of the five, as they called them, civilized tribes. Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, and Seminole. Each recipe contributor identified the tribe from which he or she claimed to descend. In Senator Warren's case, she claimed to descend from the Cherokee tribe in each of her published recipes. And uh, two of these um, recipes um, were actually plagiarized. Cold omelets with crab meat and crab with tomato mayonnaise dressing and fabulous lying in a white wine sauce, were copied from a 1975 New York Times News Service article by Pierre Franey. I guess when you um, plagiarize prior to the internet, um, it's pretty tough to, to get away with it later on. So there's no evidence to support her claim of Cherokee ancestry. Uh, there is evidence, however, that shows that her great-great-great-grandfather, Jonathan Crawford, was a member of the Tennessee militia in the, in the 1830s, who rounded up the local Cherokee as the first step in their forced trail of tears journey to Oklahoma. So why, uh, why is this important? Well, so there are sports teams that have sort of Indians with mohawks uh, and, and uh, tomahawks as their insignia, and this is considered to be uh, an exploitation of the suffering of the indigenous people of, Amer of the Americas, who, of course, uh, died by the millions after the Western Europeans came to basically invade and uh, commit genetic, uh, sorry, commit, uh, commit um, a kind of genocide against them through biological warfare of smallpox ridden blankets and so on. This is under some debate, whether it's an official genocide or not. To the people who uh, are dead, it's probably with scant comfort what was happening, but uh, this is um, a monstrous act of um, uh, murder and, and uh, the extermination uh, and degradation of a native people. And to exploit people's sympathy for the suffering of natives in order to get yourself a professorship at Harvard is absolutely wretched. It is absolutely wretched behavior 
So if there was a country uh, after, the, after the Holocaust, right, if there was a country that gave preferential hiring policies to Jews uh, and somebody who had absolutely zero evidence for being a Jew claimed to be a Jew, in other words, was exploiting the suffering of the Holocaust in order to advance their career, uh, this would be considered an absolutely unholy thing to do, a monstrous lapse of uh, judgment. So uh, it is important. It is important as a matter of character. And um, the fact that it has uh, really gone on this long, that it's been disproven so much and that she's still a public figure, only shows you the degree to which the left really um, do protect their own. So uh, let's have a look at some of her commandments of being a progressive. One, we believe that Wall Street needs stronger rules and tougher enforcement, and we're willing to fight for it. This plays into the emotional argument from the left around the crash of 2007-2008 that wiped out 40% of America's wealth and is in the process of continuing to do so, that there was this huge deregulation and in the wild west of the free market, companies just went hog wild and shafted everyone because there wasn't this government oversight. And uh, this, I mean, ties into sort of family myths or ideas that children need to be rigidly controlled and things enforced. Otherwise, they go, you know, full on um, (laughs) tribal and throw piggy off a cliff in Lord of the Flies situations that without sort of strict government oversight, uh, people just go completely crazy and uh, plunder the planet. Uh, This is um, this is not true. Uh, It's not even remotely true. Regulation increased uh, under Bush uh, and. uh, it's not. Uh, it's just not not the case. Uh, there was no massive deregulation of uh, the industry that occurred. It's just a myth. So when the government screws things up, they have to find a scapegoat. Otherwise, people question the value of the government. The scapegoat in this case, as it always is, the government hyper-regulates something, which then uh, produces what's called regulatory capture. So the government starts regulating the financial industry. And then the financial industry um, supplies people to write those regulations and gives huge amounts of money to politicians. Those politicians then give favorable um, legislation and bailouts to uh, the companies. And uh, there's no regulation that occurs at all. And um, it's actually just it's a way of promoting favoritism among the largest corporations because the largest corporations have the most money in the biggest legal departments. So it creates a barrier to entry and gives the largest companies strong access to political power uh, and through campaign contributions, which can't be matched by the smaller companies. And uh, so this idea that this, uh, you know, well, these guys went crazy uh, and we just put bigger fences around them and they'll be lovely and nice and domesticated uh, is, is completely false. And um, so, for example, right, so during the time that these companies were going hog wild, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, was responsible for policing them. And uh, what happened? So this is a quote from an article. During the past five years, the SEC OIG, Office of Inspector General, substantiated that dozens of SEC employees and or contractors violated commission rules and policies, as well as the government-wide standards of ethical contact, by viewing pornographic, sexually explicit, or Sexually, sexually suggestive images using government computer resources and official time. And more than half of these workers made between $99,000 and $223,000 a year. Uh, all these cases took place over the past five years. Now, one regional office staff accountant at the SEC tried to access pornographic websites 
nearly 1,800 times using her SEC laptop during a two-week period. She also had about 600 pornographic images saved on her laptop hard drive. Fortunately, that hard drive was not being run by the IT department at the IRS. A senior attorney at SEC headquarters admitted to downloading pornography up to eight hours a day, according to the investigation. Um, to add insult to injury, he actually also filed for a carpal tunnel syndrome uh, injury. Just kidding. Boy, now those are some offices where you really want to knock before going in, right? Uh, the Inspector General's report said, in fact, this attorney downloaded so much pornography to his government computer that he exhausted the available space on the computer hard drive and downloaded pornography to CDs or DVDs that he accumulated in boxes in his office. And uh, that's uh, some horrifyingly fascinating stuff. So let's have a look at, um, in the document, of course, there is a number of, uh, uh, we can see the websites that these people went to. So the first is um, ladyboyjuice.com, uh, analsins.com, which I don't believe is incomplete wiping, uh, hotgoo.com, which I don't think is about grouting in Florida, um, trannytit.com, uh, not also, um, I'm sure, very savory, um, highboobs.com, <laughs> which I believe uh, is a review of the movie Gravity, uh, erectionphotos.com, I'm sure that is construction site. Um, ladyboysxxx.com. If XXX is in the title, I'm imagining that lady in the ladyboys might be a bit of an exaggeration. Gaydemon.com. Femdomblog.net. Um, what else do we have here? Nextgay.com. Uh, really, the whole mess just uh, goes uh, on and on. Buckskinbuffet.blogspot.com. Cafe Buckskin. I don't know what buckskin is. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, somebody just told me what camel toe was the other day, to which I went, ah! <laughs> so uh, I leave it to you to figure out the degree to which the government is going to be highly effective at uh, policing. Um, Maybe if the people who are doing bad things in the finance industry uh, post sex photos uh, on the Internet, then the SEC might actually be able to find a way to find them. Number two from the 11 Commandments, we believe in science, and that means we have a responsibility to protect the Earth. Uh, this, of course, I assume is a reference to global warming or global cooling or climate change and so on. And uh, yeah. We believe in science, and that means we have a responsibility to protect the Earth. Fantastic. So what I would assume she means by that is, because she's obviously a very intelligent uh, lady, what she means by that, I assume, is that we need to get the federal government or the, the Fed, uh, which is uh, uh, tightly related to the federal government, the Federal Reserve to stop printing so much money and stop borrowing. Because... Printing a lot of money and borrowing and spending uh, really stimulates consumer consumption and consumer demand, thus destroying the earth, right? So inflation, money supply, debt, uh, all of the um, cocaine up the nose of the Western economies is really causing us to despoil the earth in a highly rapid manner. So we need to, of course, move to Bitcoin or privatize the currency uh, so that people can have a stable currency which doesn't promote massive 
consumptionism. Uh, also, inflation, of course, provokes consumptionism because if your money is worth le- ne- uh, less next year, then you want to spend it or convert it into materials or goods or real estate or houses or something in the here and now because your money is basically bleeding to death on the floor. And so I'm sure that she's talking about that. But of course, she's not. She's talking about a massive expansion of uh, government power. You know, one of the reasons why uh, agricultural prices are so high uh, and why your grocery bill is so high is because massive amounts of agricultural land in the world has been turned over to biofuels production. And uh, this is all uh, nonsense. She says, we believe that the internet shouldn't be rigged to benefit big corporations, and that means real net neutrality. Um, Well, I'm going to do a presentation on net neutrality, so maybe I'll skip that, other than to say government involvement in the oversight of media from print to uh, radio to television to the internet and onwards has been massive, and the amount of government control and regulation over the internet is enormous, and... uh, You know, the U.S. has the most laws of any country in the world and probably the most laws of any country throughout history. Uh, It has, um, I think the Federal Registry has over a million laws and regulations that go on, and that's just the registry, let alone the criminal code, let alone the tax code. If you put all the regulations that apply to U.S. citizens in a single room, an airplane hangar and a microfiche probably wouldn't be uh, enough. And so the idea that we just don't quite have uh, enough laws or regulations or controls uh, is uh, is deeply insane. And again, from a law professor, can only be uh, empty-headed populism. We believe, she says, that no one should work full-time and still live in poverty. That means raising the minimum wage. Well, um, of course, raising the minimum wage drives inflation, uh, which then causes the minimum wage to have to be raised once more. But for those who don't know, and I think this is really interesting to um, to figure out. So the minimum wage... Is um, it was originally um, calculated in the 1960s at uh, a buck and a quarter. Now, back in the day, let me just get my text up here. So, the minimum wage in the two years before 1966 was five 90% silver quarters, so a buck and a quarter. That 90% silver, dollar and a quarter, is about $25 in today's money, right? So, before they started debasing the currency and going off the gold standard in order to print massive amounts of money to have both the warfare and the welfare state, right, to run the Vietnam War and to have the war on poverty and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and the massive expansion of uh, welfare, uh, which is basically the single mom state. Before they debased the currency, uh, quarters were 90% silver, and that's one of the ways in which they could not debase the currency because you actually had to have the silver to make the quarters. Now, if you took uh, quarters from 1965 and they were 90% silver, and you converted them to what silver is worth right now, it's about 25 bucks. So if the minimum wage had stayed at about $1.25 an hour, and the central bank had not debased the money supply, then minimum wage workers would be about two to three times better off in terms of real purchasing power than they currently are, uh, even though the minimum wage is almost six times the amount prior to 1966. So... To sum up, because of the money supply inflation run by the central banks, the minimum wage is nearly six times as high, but buys less than half as much. Let's put it another way. So a pre-depacement quarter, so this is a quarter from 1965, can still buy you a gallon of gas because of the silver content, with change left over. A gallon of gas cost about 15 minutes of minimum wage labor in the early 1960s. 
Now, gas has actually gotten cheaper relative to gold and silver money since then. A minimum wage worker in 1963 could work for 10 minutes and then send the wages of those 10 minutes, right, to 90% silver dimes worth about four of today's dollars. Forward in time and buy a gallon of gas. It takes today's minimum wage worker about three times as long to earn that same gallon. And I put links to all of this stuff below. This is from the Dollar Vigilante. So uh, the, the, there's nothing wrong with the minimum wage. I mean, the problem is that the money has been broken and debased. And uh, she's uh, clearly educated enough to know about all of this stuff. Uh, but of course, she doesn't want to talk about that. She says, number five, we believe that fast food workers deserve a livable wage. And that means that when they take to the picket line, we are proud to fight alongside them. To me, there's a kind of subtle racism in all of this. So a lot more blacks and Hispanics than whites are stuck at uh, fast food outlets and minimum wage jobs. And for a lot of non-minorities, you know, you get a minimum wage job when you're a teenager or you're living alone and then you sort of you move on and you move up. Now, she's basically saying when, you, when she says, um, you know, people stuck at minimum wages basically trying to raise families and so on, uh, this is what a livable wage is, she's talking a lot about blacks and, and Hispanics and other minorities. And is she saying that they can't move on and move up like white people do? And, and therefore, they have to just have government force employers to give them more money because they can't find ways of earning more money or becoming more valuable or moving on or moving up? I think it's uh, pretty racist to say that, and uh, I'm not a big fan of this kind of approach. Um, I mean, the minimum wage affects fewer than 1% of American workers, and uh, the majority of those are not raising families. But if she's saying that um, blacks and Hispanics need government help in order to give them minimum uh, livable wages, as she calls them, uh, I think that's pretty racist. Um, So she says, number six, we believe that students are entitled to get an education without being crushed by debt. And it's true that the price of education has risen 900% in recent years. It's absolutely horrendous and brutal. It may not be a huge and massive mystery as to why. So at the same time that Elizabeth Warren is saying, uh, we believe that uh, students are entitled to get an education without being crushed by debt, Elizabeth Warren was paid, are you ready? Grab your seat. Elizabeth Warren was paid $429,981 as a Harvard Law professor from 2010 to 2011. Let me say that again. She's saying that students shouldn't pay too much for their education. Her bill as a professor, what she was paid for as a professor, $429,981 from 2010 to 2011. Remember, this is a professor three or four months off in the summer, sabbaticals. Um, You only have to work really a couple of hours a week uh, teaching classes. Your TAs in general will do the marking of the exams. So at an hourly rate, it's basically infinity. Uh, And you have tenure, you can't be fired. Um, I mean, it is really uh, one of the most plum jobs in this or any other planet. Now, the question of why uh, the price of education is going up so much is fundamentally due to The answer is fundamentally due to government involvement, as it usually is when the prices go way up in any particular field. Governments are subsidizing education uh, massively, giving huge amounts of money to universities. The universities then do this. With all that money, they just build a whole bunch of new stuff and hire a bunch of new people. And then they have to pay for all of this stuff because the government doesn't cover it all. And then they start raising tuition. Governments are also... Uh, subsidizing education with loans and grants and and forcing banks to give loans and grants to students. 
uh, and therefore the demand for it is uh, massively increasing. So um, students are entitled to get an education without being crushed by debt. Well, um, if the government stops giving lots of money to universities and if universities, uh, sorry, if the government stops giving lots of money to people who want to attend universities, particularly for economic, non, economically non-productive fields, then you won't have this problem. I mean, education is something you don't need to go to school for. Of course, with the internet and, and libraries and, and so on, you can get a fantastic education. Just go to the Khan Academy, for heaven's sakes. You can get a fantastic education. Almost all of the university materials that are taught in even the Ivy League schools are available uh, online for free. And so you don't need to go to school. I mean, you could, of course, just go and take the exam that the schools provide without having to show up in classes and all that. So this is a completely inefficient way to get people educated. Like most things the government's involved in, it kind of freezes in time and you end up with this post-medieval academe situation, which doesn't make any sense given the availability and distribution of knowledge in modern technological environments. But there is a very real reason why the government wants to uh, crush uh, students uh, by debt. And Noam Chomsky has, has talked about this. Uh, basically, um, uh, governments are threatened by intelligent individuals who threaten, who, sorry, who question the status quo. And um, the Flynn effect, right, which is that IQ tends to raise every successive generation, uh, means that governments are finding it harder and harder to manage a more and more intelligent population, right? Once the pigs can pick the locks, then you have to invest in more expensive locks. And so how does the government combat the Flynn effect? In other words, the people who are getting more and more intelligent and therefore questioning the system more, well, um, it subsidizes their education and gets them locked in a death spiral of debt uh, to the point where they're just paranoid, freaked out, worried, have to work, live at home, and aren't going out protesting and questioning the system. So the debt noose is really around the windpipe of those who might cry out for change in the next generation. So it works for everyone, of course, except the future generations. And also, look, I mean, obviously Elizabeth Warren getting a billion dollars an hour as a Harvard Law professor, her education was a very good investment. Uh, and um, this is my, my father, a PhD in geology. Uh, he was uh, uh, looking for gold in, in South Africa. And his uh, PhD was paid for by the company he ended up working for. So they said, well, we'll pay for your PhD, but you've got to come work for us a while afterwards. In other words, his job was guaranteed by the market demand for his uh, PhD. And uh, this, of course, could work in a number of fields, uh, not necessarily art history, although there are curators who would want that kind of stuff. But um, you really want market demand to drive very expensive education, unless you're, you know, a trustafarian dilettante who just wants to go and uh, read for fun, if not profit. Uh, so there should be a pull from business for the most expensive degrees. Um, I mean, hospitals would pay for doctors to get their uh, medical uh, licenses and so on. Uh, that's how it should work, of course. And then y you look at things like basket weaving and art history uh, or, you know, my own particular uh, field history. Uh, then uh, this is some, uh, it's a hobby and there's nothing wrong with that. But you shouldn't necessarily get government money for a hobby. Uh, she says, we believe that after a lifetime of work, people are entitled to retire with dignity, and that means protecting Social Security, Medicare, and pensions. Well, I mean, the boomers are going to get vastly more out of particularly Medicare than they ever paid in, three to four times more. Um, so, I mean, it's just theft. It's theft from the richest generation to the generation with the fewest economic opportunities in a couple of generations. So uh, it is... Um, uh, if the government is going to take basically 15% of your income for your life, then you're kind of hostage to Social Security. 
because they've taken it from you, and the only way you can get it back is to apply. So if they take your money hostage, you have to negotiate to get it released back to you. Um, but um, if people get to keep their own money, then um, they don't actually need, and they'll do far better than they would under the government's uh, social security system. So, yeah, I- if you take my stuff, then I'm going to have to negotiate with you to get it back, which is called a vote. But it's got nothing to do with protecting people's um, dignity in the old age or whatever. Uh, we believe, I can't believe I have to say this in 2014, we believe in equal pay for equal work. So the leftist cliche that I think she obviously means that women are underpaid relative to men uh, has been disproven so many times that I'm simply, you can just go look at Dr. Warren Farrell's work on this. That's F-A-R-R-E-L-L. It's, and um, Thomas Sowell's S-O-W-E-L-L, his work on this. It's just been disproven so many times that it's just ridiculous. Um, Women do get paid uh, for the work that they do. In fact, they get paid slightly more than men for the work that they do, with the exception that if they take time off to have kids, which a lot of them do, then they're worth less. Isn't that shocking? If you're not in the workforce and if you spend a lot of time raising children, you are worth less. And, um, but, and she knows all of this, right? I mean, she, uh, she's either, I mean, if you're going to talk about a topic, then you need to do the research about the topic. If you're going to make public statements. So she's either talking out of her ass, which is ridiculous and irresponsible, or she knows better, but she's playing to the masses, which is uh, reprehensible. Uh, we believe that equal means equal, and that's true in marriage. It's true in the workplace. It's true in all of America. Actually, it's not true in all of America. Equal means equal. I don't have the power to create taxes and government programs, so that's all nonsense. Uh, We believe that immigration has made this country strong and vibrant, and that means reform. And um, this is, I mean, the Democrats, as I talked about in the Truth About Immigration presentation recently, which you should really check out, uh, the Democrats uh, know that when they bring immigrants into the country, those immigrants will overwhelmingly vote Democrat. And uh, so they're just, they they can't convince uh, Americans in general of the virtue and value of their ideas. So they simply import people, they want to import people who will vote for them and also play to the voting base who want their relatives to come into the country. So, um, you know, we believe that immigration has made the Democrat- Democratic Party strong. Democrat Party is not an organic party. It survives on uh, handouts from mostly public sector unions, uh, which is not democratic, not voluntary. It's forced association. The workers are forced to pay the union dues and then the union members hand it over to the political parties, regardless of whether the worker actually supports those political parties. Forced association is a violation of freedom of association, of course. And so the Democrat Party gets its money, I mean, from Hollywood and so on, which Hollywood is dependent on um, unions, right? So they have to toe the line. Uh, So they're dependent on Hollywood, they're dependent on public sector unions, and they're dependent on the votes of uh, immigrants. Uh, It's not anything to do with the free choice of the average American. Number 11, and we believe that corporations are not people, that women have a right to their bodies. We will overturn Hobby Lobby and we will fight for it. We will fight for it. All right. I talked about this recently in a shift show. Birth control is not a healthcare right. Uh, It is uh, like saying, I have a right to eat, so give me a tub of icing. Tastes good, uh, may not be that great for you, but it's certainly not an essential nutrition uh, and uh, so on. So these um, these cliches, uh, I hope, you know, the, the uh, rotting, historically decaying ideological systems end not with a bang, but with a yawn. And it certainly is my hope that people are just getting eye-rollingly bored of these uninformed, 
economically illiterate, irrational and anti-empirical cliches that constantly come out of the left. So it's my hope that uh, people will recognize that this woman, who is, is strongly suspected of having stood on the graves of millions of Native Americans in order to uh, uh, bolster her own career possibilities, uh, is pretty reprehensible. And the degree to which she has never studied anything that opposes her belief system is also reprehensible. You know, one of the things that I learned about in college and as a debater uh, from uh, high school onwards was you must be able to argue the opposing position. You must have incorporated the opposing arguments to what it is that you're putting forward. And uh, it doesn't sound like she's ever had any exposure to any information that counters her leftist cliches. The idea that she wants to put the government more in charge of things, uh, that the government is somehow going to regulate the financial industry, um, I mean, it's, it's completely insane. It's like putting Bernie, Bernie Madoff in charge of your retirement fund. Uh, the government is uh, in debt uh, to the tune and has unfunded liabilities to the tune of 170 to 180 trillion trillion dollars when the US economy is only 14 to 15 trillion a year in gross. So the idea that the agency that sells off the unborn that debases the currency that starts wars that has uh, extra legal powers from an imperial presidency that ne- almost never seems to bother going through congress anymore uh, that any of this is is where we want to put our most sensitive uh, and dependent people our most sensitive and dependent Social issues uh, is completely insane. Um, Governments all around the world have been convicted in any rational court of judgment of rampant fraud, inflation, uh, murder. Uh, Of course, America now has uh, more blacks in prison than were slaves in the South during the height of slavery. Uh, It is absolutely wretched. And so it's my hope that people will start becoming incredibly bored of these unbelievably tedious cliches because when you get bored of something it actually stimulates creativity towards reason evidence and the light of true rational illumination thank you so much for watching this is stefan molyneux for free domain radio